0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: It certainly is a hard act to follow. Great voices for those... Men and their voices. and do where they get from in Russia. Joan Bartlett, it's just turned four o'clock and I'll be here until six this afternoon with Home Time. Today, peace activist Brian Terrell talking about his work at home and in the US and in Afghanistan over many, many years for the, the group Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Why isn't the world demanding that Palestinian children not be arrested, tortured, jailed? I'll be speaking with activist Kim Bullymore, who seems to be more interested in having Mr Netanyahu come to Australia for a visit. And I don't think he's going to get a very warm welcome by many people if he does come. A look into the Middle East and Eastern history with historian and author Brian McKinley. And Dr Peter Love, who's the president of the History Society, will be answering the question, who was Anstey? People living on the upfield line might know that, well, they would know that one of the railway stations in Brunswick is called Anstey. Well, Dr Peter Love is the biographer of Frank Anstey, so we'll be hearing who he was, what he did. But first, Mr Kevin Healy... And well, let's see what sort of a week he's had.
2: A weak journalist. to win spare a thought for the poor bank big supremos who have to face the probing depths of the ignorant politicians, many of whom have no idea how banks work, how banks have to make obscene profits in order to keep the economy flowing. As we quoted that big bank supremo last week, nabbed the profits, Brian, hit them harcha. the banks are like the heart circulating the blood of capital around the body of the economy. Yet even before the cup of tea and Biscuit's annual three-hour invite gets going, they've announced they may introduce penalties for rate rigging. Surely they need to wait and hear why the poor banks need to rig rates, part of that essential obscene profits, we suspect. But if some poor bank striving to keep the heart of the economy working ends up before the courts, big, big if, but... I imagine if the bank is found guilty of some offence, the big supremo and the board of directors will be the ones carted off to the big house, we asked Brian. (laughs) He couldn't stop laughing. No idea why, must be nerves at the prospect. Yet as the government gets tough and puts big bank supremos through the ordeal of tea and biscuits for three hours a year, the Socialist Party continues its irrational argument that the three hours a year tea and biscuits is to avoid a real investigation, a Her Most Gracious Majesty Royal Commission, which would also drag the victims of alleged, repeat alleged bank rip-offs to tell their side of the story. What nonsense. Big Supremo Malcolm Bull himself assured us three hours a year will lead to massive cultural changes in the big banks. And this week the banks have also pointed out this new proposed law about the effect of giant corporation competition crushing competition will in fact stifle competition in the banks because the banks will be afraid to innovate in case its effect is to crush the competition. Uh, So where does the competition come in now, Brian? Well, we compete in ripping off, for instance. Well, alleged ripping off. We compete on seeing who can supply the lowest interest rates on what we pay customers and the highest interest rates on what we charge customers. We we compete on fees to see who can raise the biggest fees, who can come up with the most innovative fees. You, you've no idea how much fun, how many laughs we get out of this, like the walking in the door fee, standing at the automatic teller fee and if the government agrees with us that like the witch bank which used to be our bank whose privatisation has done so much for competition for the efficiency of the private sector if they agree to privatise the footpaths outside our properties and don't forget these are our properties then we have this very clever plan to introduce a walking past the door fee so an effects test would threaten, would stifle such innovation and competition, which is the very essence of market forces of our critical role as the heart of the economy. It's always the same with great corporations, pure selflessness. So that class action in Texas at a bloody huge profits, bloody huge profitable shale fracking operation must be an aberration. Security workers needed to keep out the long-haired commie anti-fracking Luddites are taking action over being paid less than the minimum $7.25 an hour wage, real figure, and not being paid overtime. After all, bloody huge is only there because it cares about the local community. It goes all over the world caring about local communities, the local community and the environment. If the long-haired commie lot would only realise that the resource industry's own unbiased neutral studies have shown fracking causes no harm whatever... Okay, okay, there's been the odd earthquake in Pennsylvania that some non experts like scientists have suggested might have a bit to do with fracking and a a few other minor problems, but if they'd only realise, then Bloody Huge wouldn't have to eat into its profits by paying or not paying, as it turns out, those workers that exorbitant $7.25 an hour. That's $58 a day, and they're complaining. And our bottom line shows a very, very good environment, bloody huge battled on. And when you are a responsible corporation bent on doing good works, it must hurt, must cut deep. When the ignorant wooden worker in iron lots claim there are contradictions in the greatest little economic order. No contradiction, for instance, from that report this week. The government sought from the usual neutral panel following claims the innovation and research and development tax handouts, tax breaks, were being rorted as if. Well, the committee to look at the rorts and decide whether they should be better supervised recommended ways to stop rorting, I hear you say. Not that great corporations would be into rorting with government handouts, but ways too. I hear you say. Well, no, no. Recommended the handouts be doubled, up to $17 million a year for large companies, showing there's no contradiction because it just maintains or, even better, doubles the non-contradiction. And any wonder we have to find savings in non-innovative areas like dole budgers and single mums, sponging pensioners, state schools, public housing, public transport, bleeding the economy dry, all those optional spending areas. Following that riveting debate in the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, it was revealed, well, unconfirmed revealed, that one of the great minds striving to lead the liberty, freedom and democracy world hadn't paid tax in eons based on a brilliant business manoeuvre to lose a cool billion dollars. Well, he keeps telling us he's a great businessman. And as he said, not paying tax shows how smart he is. As our very own warm, caring, sadly lamented, Lord Kerry of Waterhouse said so often on this segment, they say there's only two certainties in life, death and, uh, death and, uh, death and, uh, Christ, what's the other one? It must be smart as a businessman, but Donald may be about to discover it's not quite so smart when you want those who do pay taxes, who can't avoid them, to vote for you. But then again, this being the U.S. of, it might work in his favour. And it explains why he hasn't made public his tax returns. There's nothing to make public. And these claims that Donald is misogynist how could a misogynist own the miss universe quest he must love women using them in his quest for world peace speaking of world peace the world mourned the death of zion politician shimon perish the arabs Honoured for being the father of the Zion nuclear train killer weapons program and proud enthusiastic generator of its illegal settlements in the countries illegally occupied after bombing and slaughtering the occupied people, for which he won a Nobel Peace Prize for negotiating peace. The grateful Palestinian people, or rather non-people, must be so thankful and wonder what life would be like if they didn't have peace. Thank you, Shimon, for giving us peace. Now all we need is a country, a bit of land. With that attitude, they'll never win a Nobel Peace Prize. Wanting a country in what Shimon knew was Greater Zion, given to Zion by Yahweh 3,000 years ago. But you took our country only 69, well, almost 70 years ago. Exactly. After all this time, you must accept the fait accompli, accept that, and accept that Shimon gave you peace. Uh, But we must have our country. It's that attitude that prevents you accepting the peace that Shimon gave his life for. On non-racism, live and let live, as the western suburbs celebrate the breaking of a 62-year drought, well, Technically, they're the first team called Western Bulldogs ever to win a flag. The game was almost cancelled due to a sensation, a possible diplomatic exploitation exposed by that appalling Hoonson, who screamed the government should cancel the match because she had reliable information that enemy forces, to wit, Muslims, planned to exploit the occasion to undermine true blue Aussie values with subtle, surreptitious propaganda. The game must be stopped, she warned, unless the governments and the AFL can guarantee the three-quarter time oranges will not be halal. No halal! Appalling. Thanks for coming on the uh, week that was. Obviously, you must be talking about blood oranges. Please explain! Oh, well, that was our in-depth interview with that appalling. The authorities obviously solved the problem. Finally, the Hayseed and sheepshit Party Supremo and Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle came under fire unfairly for suggesting South Aussie's over-reliance on renewable energy led to the state blackout, showing it needed to construct lots of lovely lifting-the-world-out-of-poverty fossils. His critics saying surges and towers blowing over had nothing to do with the source of the energy. What obfuscatory rubbish. What blew the towers over. Come on, come on, of course, the bloody wind. You tell them, Barnacle, good on you, because you'd never use a disaster to push a political barrow full of coal. Good afternoon.
1: And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy and make sure you're up bright and early tomorrow, nine o'clock for City Limits with Kevin and friends on 3CR.
0: Rise of the Morning Star presents Rockin' for West Papua A worldwide music, arts and cultural festival of events Raising awareness of the genocide and human rights abuses On the indigenous people of West Papua On Sunday the 9th of October at the Bendigo Hotel in Collingwood Rockin' for West Papua begins at 4pm It's $15 entry or $10 for Unwaged Featuring Liquor Snatch, Indigo Rising, Mystic Trio, Lap Long Holiday, Native Rain, New Age Elf Transporter, MC Izzy and West Papuan Traditional Food and Dancing. We stand for the arts, we stand for First Nations people and we stand for West Papua. Rise of the
1: Morning Star is a 3CR support. And something for this Sunday.
3: On Sunday, the 9th of October,
1: 3CR opens its doors to the community
4: and invites you to come in and celebrate 40 years of radical radio. There'll
1: be an awesome afternoon tea, roving musicians,
2: special on air broadcasts and the opportunity to step into the studio and get behind the mic.
1: There'll also be face painting for the kids, stalls, rolling station tours
2: and the chance to purchase for the first time
5: 3CR 40th birthday t-shirt.
0: Come in and enjoy your community radio station. 3CR Open Day, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy.
5: Sunday, the 9th of October, 12 to 4 pm. See <laughs> you all there.
1: Brian Terrell lives in Iowa, US, and is a coordinator for Voices for Creative Nonviolence which has long-standing roots in nonviolent resistance to U.S. war-making. Brian has been arrested and jailed numerous times for his nonviolent activism and was in court as recently as mid-August as a result of crossing the line at a military base and offering a loaf of bread and a letter. I spoke with Brian at his farm in Iowa after returning from his court appearance in Wisconsin, and began by asking him to remember when this life of activism began.
5: I can't say a specific time and place. I'm 60 years old now. It was sometime in my teens. I was raised in a family. My father was in the the military until shortly before he died when I was six years old. Before I could remember, we lived on military bases when I was a young child. And I think it was you know, growing up in a family after my father died that was quite poor and just seeing that things weren't like ought to be. And at a very young age, I got in touch with the Catholic worker movement, was able to get to know people before I was out of my teens, like Daniel Berrigan and Philip Berrigan, Dorothy Day, who had a great influence on my life and offered kind of an alternative to the injustices that I would experienced and that I witnessed.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about the philosophy of the group?
5: Okay, well, The Catholic Worker was founded in the 1930s, 1933 precisely, and uh, Dorothy Day was a woman who had been a uh, this young woman. She was a journalist and uh, an activist. She was involved with the uh, Wobblies, the Industrial Workers of the World. She was uh, wrote for the, uh, the call and uh, the masses. There were... Socialist and communist newspapers. She had a conversion to Catholicism after the birth of her child, and it left her very confused and kind of lost because she felt that uh, she said she got no comfort, but only desolation from her conversion. She felt that she was abandoning her comrades in the struggle. By and by, she met a Frenchman, Peter Morin, who was actually in the United States as an undocumented laborer, who opened her eyes. To the fact that the uh, Gospels and much of Catholic tradition offer a radical critique, even a critique more radical than that of Marxism, and that she could be a radical and a Christian and a Catholic at the same time, which was a great revelation for her. So it's also involved in the, the, the works of mercy of uh, Catholic houses around the country, and you know, some in Australia and in other countries are uh, doing the works of mercy. They're not uh, charities. Uh, most Catholic houses are not tax-exempt. Institutions usually don't be- find a place on the organizational charts of a diocese or any other institution, but they're homes that people are welcoming homeless people, feeding hungry people, uh, giving away clothes, uh, not as charity but as justice, and as the idea that we're just raw neighbors and we're all part of one family. We share with each other, not out of our surplus necessarily, but sometimes even out of our our means of, of uh, living ourselves. So the Catholic Worker very early got involved in the anti-war movement. I was one of the few pacifist voices during World War II. In the Vietnam era, the first Americans to burn their draft cards were members of the Catholic Worker movement. I think we see a lot of the uh, issues that we are dealing with in the international uh, level and uh, on the local level are all rooted in the same place, rooted in war, rooted in greed and economic injustice.
1: What was your first action?
5: Very early on, I think the first times I carried a picket sign and handed out leaflets were in uh, New York City in 1975 about the uh, United Farm Workers, the laborers, mostly immigrant laborers in the fields united states growing vegetables and the grapes for our wine and and things. very quickly got involved in anti-nuclear war issues i remember my the first time i was actually arrested was back in 1975 no 77 and i was at the pentagon in a sit-in in the doorway blocking the doorway of of uh, high-ranking people trying to get into the pentagon people who were involved in wars going on, even at that time, that many people didn't know about around the world and who were planning for World War III. So that was my first arrest.
1: And where did it go from there?
5: don't want to sound too tra- dramatic because it's spread over uh, 40 years, but I've been arrested. It hasn't been 200 times, but not too much less than that. I'm not not keeping track.
3: Daniel Berrigan
5: was asked the question how many times he was arrested, and he said uh, not enough. So I think that's how how I feel about it and all told I've amassed about a little bit more than two years of the last 40 years I've spent in prison and jails. The last time I did any chunk of time was a little over three years ago I was released after six months in prison for a protest against the drones being flown out of Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri.
1: Six months is a fair sentence isn't it for what did you do?
5: It was simply uh trespass I had with with, with uh, two friends had a message to deliver to the, uh, the commander of the base, a space where they're flying by remote control well, the United States flying combat missions by drones in Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia who knows where else and uh, we simply were carrying a piece of paper into the commander's base and had they not known that that the authorities had not known that we were there, the purpose of our being there, we probably would have been uh, uh, given directions to the commander's headquarters and allowed on, because it's not a very, very secure base. But because we were there to announce our protest uh, to oppose the policy of the United States Air Force and the U.S. government, we were arrested and tried. One of my friends, the three of us who had no record at all, was given probation for five years and then another with a little bit less of a record than mine was sentenced to four months, and I got six months.
1: They see a small group of peace activists as such a threat that they'll put you in jail.
5: You know, in a sense, they're right. I take some some comfort sometimes in the overreactions of the authorities to, to the things that we do, the things that that, that seem like a gross overreactions, is that... Uh, you know, we often doubt ourselves and doubt what we are capable of doing, and we think we're, we're just flailing around. But uh, there are people in some very high places who are uh, very concerned that if they're left to our own devices, we might actually do what we're set out setting out to do, and turn over the whole world order and, and uh, get rid of militarism and imperialism. You know, we find that with the... Uh, in recent years, the, the tapes of Richard Nixon in the White House—how he uh, was absolutely paranoid about the, uh, the protests taking place in the streets—and it was just uh, the highest priority for him that the government surveil and follow and do what they can to stymie. stymie us. And I'm not glad that that's going on, but I, I do take do recognize that that's a sign that uh, we actually have more power than we than we believe our, we have.
1: Well, in that case, how are you treated in the jails and prisons?
5: It's always uh, different. There's a big variety of prisons in the United States. Actually, when I was in my six months in Yankton, federal prison camp uh, where I was for this Missouri action, the day before I surrendered myself to the prison, I talked to a reporter from the local newspaper. So the day that I arrived at the the prison, the local paper had my picture on the... uh, front page, and it's, uh, Carol says, drone strikes must stop. So I got there, and all the warders and all the uh, prisoners knew just what I was there for. I walked into the library my first day, and there was a prisoner standing in front of the room reading the article about me to the other the other inmates. You know, people uh, treated me with very, a uh, you know, very cordial time. I, one of the times I spent six months with so few negative interactions with other human beings. Another time, though, just last April, I was four days in Las Vegas, Nevada, and uh, Creech Air Force Base is near there, and that's the, the center, the, the, the first of the drone bases, the Center for the Air Force Drone Program. I actually had was jailed because I had been arrested the year before and uh, given a $98 fine, which I had not paid. So I was held in jail for four days in lieu of the uh, Fine, I had not paid, and the city jail, the county jail in Las Vegas, is every bit as extravagant in its uh, horrors as the uh, city itself is with its casinos and shows and glitz and glitter. Very uh, horrific scene, terribly overcrowded. In the first uh, until the first three nights I was there, I was sleeping on a floor that was so dirty you wouldn't even want to walk on it, and. The first eight hours, I was in shackles and chains the entire time, and saw many of the my fellow prisoners uh, who were in there for the same kind of minor offenses or not paying fines. As I uh, treated uh, quite brutally, saw you know several people being beaten. So that's kind of the more regular thing for a uh, in the United States today with our hyper incarceration. What a uh, urban jail in the united states looks like
1: talk about the drones and how long you've been campaigning against them and just how devastating they are
5: i think that the drone has really come brought a lot of things together and it's true what people say it's it's the same to somebody who's blown up by a missile whether there's a pilot in the in the plane or not, but but this just makes it so much easier, and it it brings together all the the problems of technology and uh, alienation of people from one another. Some of the drone pilots who've who've left, and uh, the air force is having a very hard time finding people to do this work. Uh, they say that they're uh, extremely. While they're maybe 7,000 miles away from their victims, they are also only inches away from their victims because they see in high-definition video their victims being really being you know, blown apart, pixel by pixel, in the, on the screens. They see the impact of their missiles that a that a uh, fighter pilot would never ever see, or even the uh, pilot, uh, even a soldier on the ground won't see. And the effect on overseas, several people who've been in intelligence and diplomats and the service of the United States and in the military have uh, left and said that uh, we are making more enemies than we're killing um, every drone strike. You know, the effect of it is a net gain of enemies for our country and people who who mean us harm terribly destabilizing. And, you know, it's it, not even war. There, there are several scholars who said that war is getting to be a thing of the past because we're not, there are just fewer actual um, conflicts going on on this planet than at any other time. And I don't think we can congratulate ourselves for that, it's, but it's because the violence, brutality of war has turned into something else. For example, the United States is not now and has not been in a state of conflict with Pakistan. You know, with Yemen, with Somalia, with Libya. And yet we're killing people in those countries. And those people, although they're being killed by the United States military, they're not really victims of war because they're not even combatants. They're people who are people that somehow through intelligence, and we find out more and more about what that intelligence means. Sometimes it means nothing more than uh, the drone acting as a... Uh, Cell phone tower and watching the internet searches that somebody on the ground is making with their phone are deciding who's to live and who's to die. Very rarely do these deaths happen on a battlefield. Very rarely are there anybody, and are they people who are in uniform who are engaged in conflict with the United States? Very rarely are there people who are actually, what, what the United States has decided, um, a white paper from the Justice Department has said that. Uh, that we do follow international law and we only target people who are imminent threat to the united states But to determine that somebody's imminent threat they don't need to establish any connection with any particular action in the past or the future so they're going on patterns of behavior of who people hang out with and who they talk to the phone with and what they're wearing and where they're you know where they are who they're related to and uh... Not killing them while they're engaged in combat or any threat to the United States or anyone else, but killing them while they're driving down the highway along with anybody else who might be, you know, within several dozen yards of their car. Killing them when they're picking up their kids at school, when they're attending a wedding or a funeral. The world is moving beyond war. I wish it was something due to some other, something else, something we could celebrate, because uh, what's coming after war is, just as scary and potentially more destabilizing than the wars we've had so far.
1: Take you back to the beginning of the century, to the invasions of Afghanistan and then Iraq. What were you and your colleagues doing at that time?
5: Uh, Going back even further, uh, Voices for Care of Nonviolence, the group that I'm working with, with mostly these days, uh, was started in the 1990s, bringing... Medicines and other things into in Iraq and breaking the sanctions uh, during between the two wars, the Gulf War '91 and then the the invasion in 2003. There were some of the most terrible sanctions ever placed as state of siege on Iraq. And during those years, we were some of the only Americans who visited there at all, and uh, setting the uh, the scene for the next war. These wars grow one on top of the other. We were already ready to, to protest. Of course, we were part of the huge protests that happened all over the United States and all over the world. My colleague, Kathy Kelly, with the, who's one of the founders of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, was actually with a delegation was in Baghdad when shock and awe happened, when the first bombs fell, just days after the uh, bombing began, too, that, that I live here in Iowa. And we organized uh, protests at the uh, National Guard base here, where they were training soldiers to, to go overseas. And then since 2009, we've been developing, Voices has been developing a, a relationship with a uh, community in, in Kabul, Afghanistan. I've been there three times and planning my fourth trip in the next month helping a group called the Afghan Peace Volunteers, a community of mostly very, very young people who are doing an amazing witness in a place that's uh, probably one of the most difficult places to live on the planet. Great uh,
0: imagination
5: and energy. They're running a street school, a school for street kids, who otherwise would not be getting an education at all, organizing a cooperative for women to sew duvet blankets that are then distributed for free to poor Afghan families. So we visit there to you know maintain these relationships and um, to deliver the money that we that we collect in other parts of the world. We try to support these efforts again, not as charity, but as as justice. I see it as a very very small part of reparations, you know, that we can do. And uh, whatever funds we're able to deliver are completely at the discretion of the uh, the Afghan people, not ours to dispose of.
1: So all these years after the invasion life for the people in Afghanistan is worse, would you say, than it was before?
5: Definitely worse. There's no question. The security situation is just so bad. One of the uh, strange facts is that last fall, after the uh, bombing of the Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Kunduz, Afghanistan, the uh, U.S. Inspector General for the uh, reconstruction of Afghanistan tried to get the the coordinates for all the many hospitals that the USAID, U.S. foreign aid, had said they were going to build, no more than uh, two out of ten could be located. Hospitals that had been bought and paid for just were never built. You know, it came out that the United States and its allies have spent more money and the reconstruction of Afghanistan and the entire Marshall plan that rebuilt Western Europe after World War II. And you don't see there's no sign that really any aspect of life in Afghanistan has, has, has not become harder and that's you know, that, that it's not just simply more dangerous. There, there is much corruption in Afghanistan for sure but most of that money disappeared you know in this country before it, before it got out of get out of the borders and once that uh, template was set for corruption and graft, it's kind of the same there. Uh, when, when I was, my first visit especially, it was striking to me that I'd see buildings, see a building that would be like 10 stories high, and one wall of it is gone, and you see people actually living like a dollhouse on the shelves of the, of the floors of the building, and asking our hosts what the story is. I w- assumed that it was a, Building that had been destroyed in the bombing in 2001, or maybe the civil war that took place in the years before that, or the Soviet invasion before that. But find out no, that was a building that was uh, begun after the, the last time Kabul had been bombed extensively, and that the, the money ran out. <laughs> it simply left on left undone, and there's a way that the sense in which this kind of aid, if it's gone to foreign aid the way it's been spent in Afghanistan, has been just another attack on the people there.
1: Do you have many opportunities to speak to returning service people to the United States who have served in Iraq and Afghanistan, to find out how they're faring now?
5: Well, yeah, we work you know, very closely with Veterans for Peace in Iraq, better veterans against the war and Afghan veterans against the war. Their plight is just pretty bleak. The healthiest of them, I, I think, are ones who are finding ways to, to try to uh, oppose the wars today and to stop the next ones from happening. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but the, there are far more veterans coming home who have committed suicide than have died in combat. And it's something that uh, even to get the United States government to recognize that that is happening has been a struggle for, for the veterans and the families of those who have those taken their lives. They're truly victims of war. You know, the kind of uh, post-traumatic stress, or maybe a better word is moral injury that, that uh, the soldiers have suffered, is
0: not really being
5: dealt with because the deal with it would be to admit what a... Uh, Kind of failure that these wars have been—that we've spent so much money, and so many people have died, and only to see things get worse for everyone, but the weapons manufacturers
1: and the people who are building the prisons
5: and the people who are building the prisons—it's all a part of part of one thing.
1: And that's peace activist U.S. peace activist Brian Terrell, who he said he's been doing it for over 40 years now, working at the moment with Voices for Creative Nonviolence, who he's been with for a long time now. And we'll hear more from Brian on the program next week as he talks more about the activism and the situation in the US concerning peace, war, prisons and what people are trying to do to change things.
0: (laughs)
3: Common Ground Festival is back this November featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Fresca, Emily Warramura, the Deans plus loads more.
0: Complimenting the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-ordering food and nature in abundance. It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way. So visit commongroundfestival.org.au for your tickets. A 3CR supporter. Of radical radio includes radical music. 3CR's Music Matters continues with this tradition every week by promoting and supporting live independent Australian music. In November, Music Matters will be three years young, and we'd love you to join us in celebrating our third birthday and 3CR's 40th birthday at a benefit gig at the Bella Union on Thursday, 3rd of November. A stellar lineup of artists to perform for Music Matters will be announced soon. So get out your diaries and lock in November the 3rd when we'll see you at the Bella Union with your dancing shoes on.
1: Daily we hear about the appalling conditions suffered by children in detention stroke, concentration camps on offshore islands on behalf of the Australian Government and children in camps in many other middle eastern and european countries but you would struggle to hear about palestinian children as young as five years old arrested tortured and jailed by the israeli state Kim Bulamore has lived and worked in the occupied palestinian west bank and my first question to her was has there been an increase in the number of children subjected to this treatment in recent years
6: obviously there is a lot of statistics around about Palestinian children who have been jailed under the occupation regime the figures that are put out by a number of the different Palestinian human rights groups for example Adamir, which is a Palestinian political prisoners organization and other groups like defense for children international in palestine which is a a human rights organization that specifically deals with palestinian child prisoners and other issues facing palestinian children in the occupied territories they've put out a a, a range of statistics and information to campaign around this issue since about 2000 uh, since the beginning of the second intifada it's estimated between then and today, there's something being like about 12,000 Palestinian children who have been jailed by the Israeli military regime at different times. Over the last few years, on average, the figure each year was around 700 Palestinian children each year were being jailed, uh, arrested and jailed, in and out. Some would only be jailed for a few hours, some would be jailed for a couple of days, some would be for weeks, some would be months, some children years depending on the situation and what was happening it's estimated in the last year or so that that figure has actually well, not estimated has been demonstrated that that figure has actually increased substantially so uh, they're basically saying the figures that are coming out of dci palestine and adamir are saying that there's been a doubling in some ways of the number of children being incarcerated at a different period. So, for example, in 2005, it was estimated there was around 930 children arrested by Israel, according to the Palestinian authorities. Now, previously, the figures for that had been around 700 or so. So, this, you know, you see this increase of figures going up. Uh, A lot of the time, the kids, we have children being arrested from anywhere between... Probably the main ages would be 10 to 18, although there has been instances of some Palestinian children as young as 8, 6, 7, 8 being detained for several hours or arrested for a day or two by the Israeli authorities as well. Generally, the primary reason they're arrested is because they're accused of stone-throwing. And, you know, on some cases that may be the case, in some cases it may not be the case. But we're also recognising that all Palestinian children uh, and all Palestinian adults in the occupied Palestinian territories are living under a military occupation, which extremely brutal and very violent. This is the everyday life for Palestinian kids and children. And uh, when Palestinian kids are arrested, this is, a, I suppose, a good demonstration of the apartheid system that exists not only in Israel but in the occupied territory. Palestinian children uh, are put through a military occupation court, whereas Israeli children, if they were arrested in the occupied territories or inside Israel itself, go through a different legal system altogether. But before we even get to that legal system, what happens with Palestinian kids who are arrested? They're usually detained by Israeli military authority. They're interrogated. There's often uh, abuse and torture that happens. Some of the statistics that I was reading earlier this morning were saying that there's cases of regularly Palestinian Children being held in solitary confinement for even without being convicted of anything, for anywhere between ten and fifteen days at a time. Often they're held under administrative detention laws and various other not laws, but they're not laws actually. They're, they're military regulations, administration detention, and so. And often the kids are not uh, afforded lawyers, their parents are not there, they're basically given information in Hebrew, they're intimidated and forced to sign a range of documents and often admit to things they may or may not have done or various other things because, you know, these are young kids who are often 10, 11, 12, 14-year-old and they're in a situation where they're being held for often hours or even days with no access to a supportive adult whether it be a lawyer or a parent who can assist them and uh, there's been videos that have come out which have been secured later on by Palestinian legal teams or international legal teams which have shown some of the interrogation that's gone on and often the kids are being yelled at and terrified and threatened often you know their families get threatened with being arrested or hurt or things like that and I suppose one of the things to note about the arrest of Palestinian children in particular is that there is a specific reason why DCEI Palestine, the Defense of Children International in Palestine has actually outlined a few years ago they did a report on the reasons why Palestinian children were being arrested oh, and they did four main reasons. the first reason is is that the reason to intimidate and threaten Anyone, whether it be Palestinian children or Palestinian adults, against being active against the occupation. So they conduct widespread arrests of both children and adults to try and intimidate people to stop actually opposing the occupation that's happening. Secondly, is is that particularly if they arrest children, the idea is to try and elicit confessions from them that will incriminate not only other children, but adults. And we've seen this happen. For example, there's a, a, one particular case I can cite. is in Nabisala, which is a well-known village who's been conducting protests since about 2009 against the occupation and against settlement taking of land and, and things like that. And that village is only about 500 people in it. And... In particular, children have been targeted by the Israeli military who go in, and this doesn't just happen in this village, just happened across the West Bank. They go in and they map. They do what's called mapping, which is basically in the middle of the night, they will go in and raid Palestinian homes to figure out how many children, how many adults are in it to map where everybody is. And often they've arrested Palestinian children. They get arrested often not just on the streets, supposedly just everyday life, they also will be arrested in the middle of the night, 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning. And what happened in Nabusala, and this has happened in other villages, is they arrested a number of the young children, 12, 13, 14 years old, kept them separated from adults and legal teams and to try and get information on the adult leaders of the anti-occupation struggle to incriminate them. And some of the testimony that was given by one or two of the children was... Supposedly used again, was, was actually used against people like Bashan Tamimi and the Naji Tamimi who are part of the leadership of the popular struggle and anti-occupation struggle in Nabi Salah. So this is not unusual, it happens all the time across the occupied West Bank and in, you know, East Jerusalem and places like that. So that's the second reason to incriminate people, to try and force, whether they be real confessions or fake confessions, to incriminate people. The third one is that by arresting kids and putting them in detention, they're used as bargaining chips, as basically to put pressure on the families who may be protesting or actively opposing the occupation. It's not just the families. It'll be on the family, the immediate family, the extended family, the village. So the idea is by arresting kids, you are putting pressure on adults to stop their anti-occupation activity uh, and to say if you if you keep doing this then we're going to come in and we're going to take your kids from you. The fourth reason is to try and develop future collaborators. So I was reading a figure today that something like there's estimated something like at least twenty thousand collaborators supposedly in the occupied territories that Israel has been able to create, uh, whether it be in the West Bank. Gaza or elsewhere. And this is basically because, you know, uh, you think about it, if a child's taken in and they're threatened and basically told, unless they inform on their friends or their family or their whatever terrible things is going to happen to them and their families. So this is how Israel creates collaborators to try and keep their occupation going and keep the, rep- the repression of Palestinians going. Uh, and so it's quite an insidious system and quite an insidious regime, which is you know, takes a huge toll on not only Palestinian children, but obviously adults as well.
1: After they've been processed, probably at the police station or wherever, what prisons are they taken to?
6: What happens is usually they're taken, it's not always to a police station, sometimes they're taken to police stations, sometimes they're just taken to a military base. It depends, and it's usually they're taken, when they're arrested, they're usually taken, it's usually to a settlement. And Unless they're kept for, you know, if they're not left, go after a few hours or things like that, and then the Israeli military decides that they're going to take it further and try and jail them or whatever, often a lot of Palestinian children, about 60% of them, are sent inside into Israel, out of the occupied territories into Israel, which is actually a violation uh, of many of the uh, international treaties and laws in relation to children. I mean, actually, just the arrest of children and keeping them in without lawyers and without parents and all of that, they're all violations of international law and various international treaties in relation to the treatment of children. So we should be very clear about that. But um, often they get taken into Israel, about 60%, I think is the figure, which makes it, difficult, you know, they're they're separated further from their families, that they can't see their families regularly, they can't uh, have visits, uh, their families often can't get into Israel because to get in there you have to have permits. Often if permits are granted, if they're granted at all, often it might only be the mother or a sister or somebody like that who can go. And often Israel also stops family visits, like even if they're, um, because often the visits are coordinated through groups like Red Cross and things like like that and often uh, it's not unusual for Israel to actually prevent visits happening again as a way of putting pressure on Palestinian families and the kids who have been
1: arrested. So what you're saying is they're they're taken to adult prisons.
6: Yes. Often, uh, Palestinian children are incarcerated into adult prisons. Uh, There's no separate prison system. And as I was saying earlier, there's apartheid... You know, this is is one of the clear examples of the apartheid nature of the Israeli state and uh, Israel's occupation of Palestine. Uh, As I was saying earlier, uh, Israeli children are processed under Israeli law, whereas Palestinian children from the occupied territories are processed under, under the occupation regime, military regime under international law anyone under 18 is seen as a child but Israel up until recently processed children Palestinian children if they were 16 as adults now technically they actually brought in some regulations to change it that supposedly they would only process them as adults if they were 18 but they actually there's a whole heap of loopholes which is too much to explain but there is all these loopholes whereas technically on paper they're not processing them at 16 as children anymore but in reality that's still happening so this is a really bad situation the kids are taken in often to adult prisons you know and sometimes it can be kids who are not just 16 it could be 14 15 13, you know, and there's also, and it's not just, uh, while probably the majority of kids who are taken are boys, there is also a substantial number of young girls who are arrested. And they can be arrested, as I said, often they're arrested and accused of throwing stones, but they can be arrested for a whole range of reasons. It, doesn't happen as much these days but it still can happen but there used to be a period of time particularly before the oslo period where kids could be arrested for ideological basically thought crimes you know there's been documented instances for example it used to be illegal Well, it still is technically illegal under military law the palestinian flag flying the palestinian flag and things like that but there were certain things brought in because of the oslo agreements that they could get away with you know, the authority could get, a Palestinian authority could fly them and things like that. But there has been incidences of people who have flown Palestinian flags, including kids, uh, or that being arrested for doing those sort of things. So there's a whole range of reasons that have happened. And as I outlined before, there's there's specific reasons for it. It's not done willy nilly. There's a specific agenda behind the arrest of Palestinian children, and it is to ensure the intimidation of the entire. Palestinian population uh, and to show that's happened. And then even if the kids do go through the court system, the military court system, before they be sent to the jails, there's something like um, a Harats, which is Harats, I've pronounced that wrong, but the uh, Israeli newspaper reported a couple of years ago that something like with the occupation arrests, when it goes through the military courts and things like that, it's something like a 97 or 98 percent conviction rate this is a system that's set up against Palestinian kids and the Palestinian population in general.
1: Kim, what's known about the conditions that they're held under in these jails?
6: It can vary. It's not good, of course. You know, as I said, often family visits are impossible or stopped. Often there's uh, some instances where, I don't know if it's still the same anymore, but there used to be instances of some of the camps were down years ago in the Negev and places like that in the deserts. So often Palestinian prisons, both adult and children's, would be in tents rather than proper structures, things like that. Obviously, when you're in the prison system, you know, you're subjected to what happens happens in prisons which are often your cells will be raided regularly you'll be forced to strip you'll be forced to woken up at all different hours of the night no privacy all of those sort of things often there's been reports of Israel in Israeli prisons where Palestinian prisoners political prisoners are being held deliberate regime of going in and sleep deprivation and various things like that often medical care is not very good. There's many instances of both adults and children who have suffered badly because of lack of uh, decent medical care. Uh, just a horrendous situation. So, being in jail as a child or even as adult is not a good thing. It's not a, a holiday in any way, shape or form. But when you're a political prisoner, it's often much worse and the situation there is to you know again it's a continuation of the terrorization and intimidation of the palestinian population as a way of trying to stop them resisting israel's military uh, occupation regime
1: i'd imagine that the human rights activists follow up on some of these children when they are released to ascertain how psychologically and maybe physically impaired they've been because of that treatment
6: yes there is there's been lots of studies i mean as i mentioned earlier if any the listeners want to go and read some of the documentation they can go to defense the chivalent international palestine or adamir their websites carry lots of documentation of interviews uh about the situation faced by not only uh adult Political prisoners, but also child political prisoners, uh, and they give you quite extensive, detailed information about you know the situations that they've had to fight. And of course, it's a it's psychological. It's uh, it's very stressful for these kids, and particularly as I was saying, you know, they suffer things like isolation, being put in a solitary confinement, as well as you know just other forms of psychological and mental torture, as well as often physical abuse as well. This is traumatic for an adult, let alone a child, and you often see the incident I mentioned before about nabi where children were being deliberately targeted to try and intimidate the adults in the village the I remember the young, the young boy because i, I um, had done some work with that village the young boy who had been arrested quite traumatized are they traumatized because of the experience they've gone through but when they're forced to give a confession whether it be real or fake there is all of this and, and often kids will just you know they, they'll just say anything because they're terrified you know they then feel this immense amount of guilt because they feel that they've betrayed their family and their friends and their you know their loved ones it's a, a lot of psychological trauma that these kids go through and one of the things that often people talk about is like that kids shouldn't be protesting against the occupation they shouldn't be part of these activities and things like that if you talk to Palestinian kids and their families you know the way they see it is as a way of decolonizing their their minds, because by actually not being inti- trying to fight the intimidation that they're facing, that helps helps to actually free them somewhat, at least in a in a, a, a breaking the chains of mental colonisation. It is a horrible situation, and obviously these kids are living under occupation. I mean, there is healthcare in places like the Occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem, but it's limited because of there's just not the services that you would have in a place like Australia. There's not access readily to psychological services or other mental health services that can help kids. So a lot of this Trauma goes untreated uh, for a very long time because there is just not the facilities there to cope with it because of the occupation so it's it's very traumatic and I, I'll give an example I, um, this is not even a child who was arrested. I'll give you an example of some of the psychological tra- torture that kids going one of the families that I knew in the West Bank, there from a there's a, a village called Masha, which is uh, in the occupied, middle of sort of the occupied West Bank. And this particular village uh, was one of the first places that the wall, the the apartheid wall was being when it was built, being built through the the West Bank was being built. And there was one particular house that belonged to this family. The wall basically cut that one house or from the rest of the village and at the, so the wall was on one side and on the back of the back of the the family house was a settlement that was built in the 1970s or 80s uh, and the house had been there before that the Palestinian house had been there before to get into the family house they were basically surrounded now by a wall fencing and the settlement. And I remember that whenever we went there, we would have to wait to be let in because the gates were locked. Often if we stood in the yard, the military would see us and then would come and harass the family. And they had a number of children, uh, obviously, uh, in the family. And they felt that they could never leave the house completely alone, like leave the house empty because they were worried that the settlers would come in or the military would come in and take the house. So often some of the kids would have to, if the parents went out to work, One of the kids would have to stay home or something like that. And I remember the youngest child in the family when I met them, first off, he was only about maybe four, three or four, and he was acting out a lot in the sense of, you know, always just getting into trouble and, you know, not your normal mischievous children stuff, which all kids get into, but really... Agitated, and it was because he was living in this horrible, horrible psychological conditions where the occupation, uh, occupation is everywhere. But in, with this particular instance, it was intruding on every single aspect with an intensity at such a high level that it was playing, you know, had all this horrible psychological impact on the kids uh, and the adults as well. But, you know, obviously adults have more coping skills than children do. So, you know, so it's not even just the kids who are being arrested and sent to jail. You see the psychological trauma that has happened to kids just living under the occupation, having to go to school every day when the military can stop you and harass you or come in and rage your school or often there's been many cases of Palestinian children being killed at, at school where, where uh, the Israeli military has started firing and they've been sitting at their, literally sitting at their desk in their school and have been killed. They could be killed walking home from school. They could be killed playing in their backyard. This is an everyday horror for kids. Surprisingly, uh, I know this sounds terrible because it is terrible but kids do try to live a normal life but it's uh, and, you know and it is surprising on one level how resilient ch- children are that they can get through a lot of it and still be relatively okay but you also then see the trauma that comes with it it's not like the, as as normal as kids might seem on one level you also see there's always that level of trauma that's there. You can't escape it, not because there's anything per se wrong. There's nothing wrong with the child. It's because they're put in such a horrible situation with a military occupation impacting on every single aspect of their and their family's lives. It just causes horrendous stress for both the adults and the children.
1: Finally, Kim, our beloved Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has just been in Israel following the trail of most of Australian politicians. And it's great to know that our government has reaffirmed its absolute commitment to the State of Israel and its ultra-right-wing PM.
6: Yes, that's right. Yes, Julie Bishop was in Israel earlier this year. Uh, she also made a very brief visit into the occupied territory. Bishop basically, you know, met with Netanyahu and affirmed uh, Australia's. Deep abiding friendship with Israel, basically invited Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, to come to Australia for an official visit next year. At the moment, we don't know the dates or the times, but the implication is, is that probably sometime in early 2017, Benjamin Netanyahu will be coming to Australia. But Julie Bishop kindly informed Netanyahu that she was sure that when he came to Australia, he would be received warmly and the Australian people would embrace him. I think uh, a lot of Australians actually won't welcome him that warmly, and they won't embrace him. And uh, because you know, this is a man who is a warmonger, This is a man who was responsible for the 50 day assault on Gaza in 2014, which saw that more than 2,200 Palestinians killed, uh, at least 1,500 of them were civilians, and of that, at least 500 of those killed were children, and something like um, you know, 300 women were killed as well. You know, 18,000 houses. uh, were destroyed, more than uh, 11,000 people were injured, Uh, 1,500 kids were left homeless, uh, not homeless, orphans, 142 Palestinian families were killed, uh, basically wiped off the map by Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, You know, they carried out 6,000 airstrikes against Gaza in that 50-day period, and they fired something like 50,000 artillery and army, uh, sorry, tank shells into Gaza. So this is what Benjamin Netanyahu is responsible. This is who the Australian government has invited to come here uh, next year. I mean, obviously, it's not surprising given that the Turnbull and previous Abbott and Howard governments and that have been carrying out their own human rights abuses on Nauru and Manus and, and of course, you know, they've wholeheartedly supported Israel's assault on Gaza and they've supported the wars uh, run by the US in the Middle East. So, you know, it's kind of birds of a feather.
1: And, of course, Julia went there when she was the prime minister.
6: Yes, that's correct. So uh, that, uh, Julia Gillard as well. So yes, the Labor government doesn't get off scot-free either. They have very much played just as much as a sycophantic role in supporting Israel's human rights abuses against uh, the Palestinian. We will be uh, organising protests when Netanyahu comes. Uh, we don't have the details yet. So hopefully, we'll obviously we'll be talking with. Uh, I'll be talking with you again, and I'll keep you updated on what's happening. But if people in the meantime want to check out the coalition against Israeli apartheid, make sure they get the Melbourne one, because there is uh, other groups named that around the world. So check out our page. We'll, put, we'll keep the details there and updating people as we have more details about what we'll be doing. But we'd love to get as many people come out, you know, who are um, opposed to Israel's military occupation, who support uh, human rights and don't want to whitewash the, the war crimes that uh, Israel has carried out and that Australia has been supporting. So, yeah, let's actually give Netanyahu the welcome he really deserves.
1: Absolutely. That's Kim Bullimore, activist for Palestine, who I said before has been there and worked and lived with the Palestinian people on a number of occasions for quite long periods of time. And that group again is the Coalition Against Israeli Apartheid Victoria Coalition Against Israeli apartheid Victoria. And you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3C R, you could be listening on eight fifty five AM. You could be listening on digital three CR or you could be listening and can be listening in the future on three Cr.org.au. The homepage will show you all the different ways that you can catch three CR. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
0: Rise of the Morning Star presents Rockin' for West Papua, a worldwide music, arts and cultural festival of events raising awareness of the genocide and human rights abuses on the indigenous people of West Papua. On Sunday, the 9th of October at the Bendigo Hotel in Collingwood, Rockin' for West Papua begins at 4pm. It's $15 entry or $10 for Unwaged. Featuring Liquor Snatch, Indigo Rising, Mystic Trio, Lapcat, Long Holiday, Native Rain, New Age, Elf Transporter, MC Izzy and West Papuan Traditional Food and Dancing. We stand for the arts, we stand for First Nations people and we stand for West Papua. Rise of the Morning Star is a 3CR support.
4: Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kildare. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going,
3: Ah! Ah!
4: Ah! That stands for reuse, Reuse, Recycle. And you heard first on
5: 3CR.
1: You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR and I'm speaking next to historian and author Brian McKinlay.
4: Jan, earlier in this year I ran a series of comments on your program looking at the First World War and all the events that flowed after 1914 and the assassination at Sarajevo. I also looked at some of the great events that the war triggered off and especially the Russian Revolution at its aftermath and the consequences of that event right across the world. I should have perhaps followed, but I didn't, because we went on to other topics, the aftermath of the First World War in relation to the collapse of the old Ottoman Empire, which, of course, um, centred on the country which today know as Turkey. Now, the Ottoman Empire was a very ancient and important event in human history. To look at it properly, I would like to go back quite a long way in human history to the Roman Empire. The eastern Mediterranean countries, including in modern times countries like Turkey and Syria and Egypt, uh, and what I suppose you'd call the broad Middle East, covering countries Uh, moving east from the Mediterranean to take in countries we know like Iran and Iraq and the Persian Gulf. And then North Africa, uh, taking in Libya, Algeria, Tunisia and Morocco, uh, have been at the heartland of European and Middle Eastern and indeed world civilization since the earliest times. After all, the very earliest civilisations in human history appeared in countries like Egypt and Iraq and in other places in the Far East, but today I'll be looking at this part of the world, which constantly features, of course, in world history and in the history of our present day, and of course is at the centre of one of the world's most strategic and important industries, and that's the oil industry. You might think if you looked at countries that have an abundance of this precious fluid that having oil in abundance is a great blessing. The history of oil-producing countries might make you think quite the opposite, that it can be seen as something of a curse because it invites the attention of other oil-needing nations to your country and to meddle from time to time in your affairs. Nothing could be truer, in fact, of the countries of the Middle East than this sad fact. Now, if we look at this part of the world, as I said, it's the birthplace of great civilizations. The Roman Empire, which extended at the height of its power from the first, second and third centuries of the Christian era, extended from places as remote from the Middle East as Scotland and Portugal to the the heartlands of the Middle East, to Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Turkey. And for centuries, these countries were all part of the Great Roman Empire, which in fact can be seen as probably a quite modern sort of institution of its kind, And certainly the world's first great empire. I mean, the very word imperialism, which comes from the word empire, would accurately describe the Roman state. I've just read a marvellous book by a British historian, Thomas Cole, called Dynasty, in which he looks at the first five Roman emperors from Augustus to Nero, all of them linked by the fact that they were descendants in a in a kind of way, not directly descendant, but all of the family of the Julians and descended from Julius Caesar. Now, the Roman Empire collapsed in the three hundreds and by the four hundreds most of the countries that had been part of the Roman Empire had been occupied by other tribes and nations. You could see the fall of the Roman Empire, of course, as a bit like events in our time, in the last century, half-century, in which imperialist powers were driven out of the lands they'd occupied. The Romans, for instance, had occupied what we know as France. They called it Gaul. But they were unwelcome conquerors. And even though after centuries they imposed their language and their customs and much else on the inhabitants of what we know as france today in the end the french people the gallic people drove out the romans when the roman empire collapsed and restored their own way of life this happened right across the roman empire in the 400s but not everywhere in some cases a form of roman rule survived and the great city of constantinople which we know today as istanbul and is the major city of turkey though not its capital constantinople remained as a great center of roman civilization with some very interesting differences It became Christian, like all of the Roman Empire, and indeed, the Emperor Constantine, who rather modestly named the city after himself, uh, Constantine uh, saw it as a a solely Christian city, and the old Rome, of course, had been Christian and, and pagan in the Christian sense. Constantinople became one of the great cities of history. When Rome in the West declined, Constantinople survived as a great city, as a great Christian city. And it became the centre of what historians call Byzantium. Now, the Byzantine Empire, once Rome in the West declined, the Byzantine Empire, centred on Istanbul or Constantinople, ruled much of the eastern Mediterranean, much of what we call the Middle East, North Africa, and for a time places like southern italy sicily greece and in a in a sense restored a great empire centered on constantinople which had some marvelous advantages it lies across a famous waterway called the bosphorus it links the mediterranean and the black sea and the aegean sea it was always even in earlier times uh, one of the great central cities of what was known as the Silk Route, in which food like uh, spices and products like silk came from places as far away as China. And the trade routes across Central Asia, known as the Silk Route, were uh, the centre of an enormous trading empire. And once it became, uh, at the hands of the Emperor Constantine, The capital of the Roman Empire and a great city in its own right, Istanbul and Constantinople to use the old term, became the greatest centre of civilisation in the whole of the Western world. Rome had faded away, but Constantinople remained, and for centuries was one of the great cities of the world, and quite probably the greatest in those early Christian centuries after the 4th and 5th century. Now, that continued until, well, on several occasions, uh, the Byzantine Empire, uh, centered on Constantinople, found itself at war, of course, with various neighbouring nations but the great threat to Constantinople came from two directions firstly powers in the west that envied its great wealth and power notably Venice but other European powers and of course from a new religion that came in the 6th century called Islam an Arab army swept into Turkey in the 6th and 7th centuries on several occasions but was always beaten back Constantinople Istanbul has one great strategic advantage it lies on the Bosphorus a waterway and it's on the European side so armies sweeping in from Asia which they generally did do would find themselves blocked by a waterway quite a substantial waterway the Bosphorus I was, I've been to Istanbul and I always think of it as a bit like Sydney Harbour. A great harbour stretching roughly north to south for about a hundred miles. An enormous belt of water. And if you wanted to cross it and didn't have a, uh, with an army and didn't have a number of vessels, quite a number of vessels, it would be quite impossible to cross. On the other side, the city lay on a peninsula which was girdled by a great wall which for centuries defied invaders. And so it was one of the great strategic cities. Not all cities are so well placed, but it survived conquerors or would-be conquerors over the centuries until in the 1400s a a new army uh, of people arrived, and these were people we call the Turks. They came from Central Asia, and somewhere along the way this vast tribe of people had been converted to Islam and so when they arrived in the 1400s in a series of attacks on Constantinople they had certain advantages Uh, one of them was that they had learned to use gunpowder and this would enable them in the end to blow up the great wall that defended the city And after several efforts, they finally crossed the Bosphorus and captured Constantinople from the Byzantines in 1461. And so this long history of nearly a thousand years in this great city came to an end as a Christian city. Uh, At the moment of its conquest, the The leader of the Turkish nation, of the Turkish tribe, I almost say, Mehmet, the conqueror he called himself, Mehmet had the idea that he would just abandon Constantinople and leave it in ruins. He'd never been in the city, of course, until he conquered it. But when he saw what a great city it was, he was captivated. Someone said he fell in love with Constantinople on the first day. And immediately set about making it his capital and restoring it and from 1400 onwards uh, this turkish tribe and the leading group among them were a family called the ottomans they having captured constantinople gradually set about restoring it to all its magnificence and several great turkish leaders now turned Constantinople once again into the great city it had been from the time of the Romans uh, and trade of course was central. The Ottoman Empire extended itself around the eastern Mediterranean. Having captured Constantinople they occupied Greece, for a little while they occupied parts of Sicily, they occupied Syria and Lebanon, Egypt and all the countries of North Africa as far away as Morocco. And so what the Ottomans created in an unexpected way was, I suppose unexpected to them, uh, was an empire that covered roughly the same ground as the old empire of Byzantium, and indeed the old Roman Empire. And for many centuries, Istanbul, the, I'm. I'm Confusing listeners, perhaps, in calling it Istanbul and Constantinople. The Turks gradually changed the name, though Constantinople still remained the most common name for the city, uh, replicating the early Christian emperor, Constantine, who had uh, named it that. Istanbul was the Turkish word for the city, so perhaps I'll call it Istanbul from now on. This great empire, governed from Istanbul by a succession of sultans, that was the Turkish word for the emperor, had some very curious features about it. Uh, The sultans, in many cases, in practically all cases, had a harem of women by whom they had children, and it was often left to the sultan, as his life progressed, to pick out a son, never a daughter pick out a son who would occupy the throne on his death sometimes the death of the sultan led to terrible conflicts among the contenders for the throne one of the most powerful people in the kingdom was a woman and that was the sultan's mother if she lived for a fairly long time she would pick out favorites among the women of harem and in the harem, with these favourites, the Sultan would conceive many children, and uh, the mother of the Sultan was a central figure. Sometimes her sister might be there if the mother had died. So the, the succession in the Ottoman family was always likely to be bloody and contested when the Sultan died. Another odd thing was that the royal family, if you can call it that, of the Sultan, had very little say while he was in power in running the kingdom. Now, it was common in European kingdoms like Britain or France for the sons of the king, who generally had, of course, only one wife, uh, to occupy a sort of central role in running the kingdom. A bit like a modern idea of government but that didn't happen in turkey in a curiously well organized way the sultan's entourage picked clever young boys all over the kingdom and recommended that they go to constantinople and be trained in government and these young men grew up to be uh the government of of the empire uh they seldom if ever had any contact again with their families, a rather tragic thing for the families. But these clever young men rose to positions of great power in Constantinople and uh, across the empire. Now, the Ottoman Empire for a long while was central to the whole of the Mediterranean region. Only a few places were able to resist it. Islands like Rhodes and Malta, where The christian inhabitants were able to hold out against them but during the 19th century the ottoman empire began to uh, collapse in part under the pressure from the western imperialist powers notably britain and france now the western powers were of course in the 19th century in the early stages of what we know as industrialization this completely evaded the turks And, for one thing, the newly uh, newly produced goods of the Western powers like Britain, especially the British and the French, but also the Germans and the Italians, began to be much sought after. And the Ottoman Empire then, or at least the rulers of the Ottoman Empire, ran up enormous debts. And by the end of the 19th century, people used a term to describe the Ottoman Empire as the sick man of Europe. But it was partly the debts that the Empire had accrued, which now the European powers began to assert, well, their right to be paid interest, at least, on these vast debts and began to interfere constantly in the affairs of the Ottomans uh, with military force. Now, in the 1880s, the British and the French, at an earlier time, by the way, had got the government of Egypt, which was nominally under Ottoman rule, but was now semi-independent, to allow the building of the Suez Canal. And the building of the Suez Canal was a central event uh, because the British and the French both uh, saw the government of Egypt as central to the proper running, really, of the canal on a day-to-day basis. And so they urged the Egyptian government to break off its its, uh, its links with Istanbul, and this was the first of series of Western interventions in the affairs of the Ottomans.
1: And there's more to come. Brian's coming back again next week to conclude his talk about the Middle East, Turkey, all the other places. Libya he's been talking about, bringing us up to, not quite sure, but a few more years into the 20th century. That's Brian McKinlay, author and historian.
2: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's OK, you are just being killed for trespassing.
0: Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch.
2: They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people.
1: Who does the killing?
2: The company has uh, specially arranged security forces.
0: Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377.
1: The topic of a public meeting held in August by the Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoratory Committee was Who Was Anstey. Today and next week we look at the life of Frank Anstey, who has two things in common with activist Vida Goldstein. They both were prominent in the anti-conscription campaigns of 1916 and 1917 and both were recognised for their activism. Vida with a federal parliamentary seat named after her and Frank a railway station on the Melbourne upfield line. Anstey's biographer is Dr Peter Love who is the president of the Labor History Society and my first question to Peter was were there events happenings in his formative childhood years which would explain his later political activism?
3: Yes a great deal, as a matter of fact. she was actually born in 1865 to a, a working-class family, a recently widowed mum. Whilst uh, she was pregnant, his dad died. He was born in Lambeth, South London, in 1865. She tried to carry on deal with him as best she could, but eventually she had to send him off to live with relatives in Devon, quite close actually to the villages of East and West Anstey, actually places where his ancestors were located originally as uh, something approaching, although nothing quite as grand as Yeoman farmers. He lived there for a bit and then she remarried and then she came and reclaimed him and headed off up north where his uh, stepfather went to work on the settler Carlisle Railway extension, which was a huge Project The Navy building sites were famous as an example of the rough and tough and rough and tumble life of railway navvies And his stepfather managed the horses at the various camps and When they left there they uh, lived an itinerant life Seeking work throughout the north and the midlands of England And Eventually they settled in Silverton in London again Uh, which was an industrial suburb. There, the young entity went off to to school and rough and tumble sort of life, really. And so at the age of 14, he jumped on on a ship and stowed away uh, initially to Melbourne, to jump ship in Sydney, then started a life there as a young bloke on his own, uh, initially as a cabin boy, and then later as he matured as an able seaman on the the coastal and South Pacific trades and ships.
1: And did that... Sort of radicalise him, mix him with the, the seamen?
3: It's pretty clear because what he, he left behind, no public record, much of himself, because of course, like he was just an ordinary young bloke working on ships, but he did keep you know, what we call a commonplace book where you write down a whole lot of stuff uh, your observations, things you want to record and remember, verse and stories. And he had a, a richly radical imagination about what a young man might be fired by, the inspiration of of people, the the struggle of the masses to throw off the tyranny of centuries, the, you know, all of that heroic stuff. Along with the stuff also, you know, from, say, oh, a bit of the bawdy stuff, a bit of the straightforward erotic stuff, which he copied the, the more erotic passages from Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis, you know, yeah, it was a really interesting mixed bag of a, um, an adolescent inquiring a lively mind who was thinking about the great issues of life in grand heroic terms. The records of his life are pretty minimal, actually, the, the direct stuff. There's a lot of the uh, formal records, the observational stuff and so on, but no, he didn't keep a long diary. There is a very, very fragmentary collections here and there of letters, mostly between him and John Curtin in later life.
1: So what do you know about when he became a political animal, I suppose you'd say, in Melbourne? How old was he well, then? Well, he
3: started a little bit before then, actually. There are hints, anyway. Uh, He joined the seamen's union firstly in Sydney and he went to work on the docks. You know that area they're tearing apart now in Sydney, Barangaroo or whatever it's called? Well, he lived actually in one of the streets that's been torn down. It was a life actually that was pretty rugged. It was the same sort of group of workers actually that Billy Hughes was organising at that time as a unionist in Sydney. And then he set off... I'm not quite sure whether he came by coastal boat or... Tramped it because he was a great walker. He wound up firstly in sale. Now, of course, as you know, sales also a port, and he was working there for a while. And he got mixed up with a woman, Kate McColl. They ended up, we think, getting married. There's no formal record of the marriage, but uh, a child ensued from this uh, this relationship. The first of uh, two boys that they had. Anyway, he then moved to Melbourne, and he was well and truly into the political stuff. To get to your question, firstly through the union, because he was a member, still a member of the Siemens union. And, of course, this is in around 1890, and of course, you've got the great strikes going on. And he was at the fringe. He was an activist. He was not at that stage the kind of platform performer that he soon became in, in Melbourne, but he was very, very active in the campaigns surrounding the industrial disputes of the early 1890s. He also joined with the... Various organisations that were precursors to the Victorian branch of the Labor Party. Because, as you know, there's no formal Labor Party in Victoria as as a continuing entity until 1902 with the political Labor Council of Victoria. But there were things like funny outfits, would you believe it? Like the Liberal and Labor Party of Victoria was (laughs) one of the iterations, which is an amusing outfit. He became active. He was working for a while as a, a cleaner and storeman at the Working Men's College. Going along steadily there, yeah, recently married, settling, being politically active all the while outside of his working hours. But then he got made redundant with the retrenchments of 1893 when the banks crashed and things went so badly for the Victorian economy. Headed up bush, rabbit trapping and things like so many other people did, leaving behind Kate and the kids. But he came back after a while to re-establish himself By the 1890s latter years, he started doing a number of things. He became one of the mob who drew together their skills and talents in a a remarkable collection of people to form a a Labour newspaper called The Toxin, which later went on in 1906 to become Labour Call and the Victorian Labour weekly paper forever. He also became part of an outfit that he and a couple of other mates established called the Victorian Labour Federation... Which was a kind of co op political force based on the Belgian Workers' Party. You know, they had production and distribution and stuff. They had shops actually on the, you know, the corner of the Vic Market, or you know, those older shop fronts on the corner there. One of them was where the, um, uh, the Victorian Labor Federation had their boot store. You know, they were going to transform the world by cooperation, you know, workers contributing their their few pence each time would build up the mighty movement that would ultimately transform their political and economic life to a higher plane, you know, the usual sorts of thing. There were various other activities he was engaged in. He was also at that stage regularly coming to places like this, that's Smith Street actually, on, in this street, for one of the regular sp- uh, spruiking spots around the, suburb, the inner suburbs time where the um, the toxiners, as they were called, who would go out preaching the gospel of the toxin you know, stuff, also the Labor Federationites, the way to locally communicate was you know, to get on a street corner.
1: Where did the word toxin come from?
3: It's the bell that that sounds the alarm in a community. The, the ringing of the bell is the toxin. One of the several vehicles which he mounted, in a sense, and and helped to to build, which got him to become more and more prominent, actually, because he was a man of restless and enormous, prodigious energies. Could be he could be quite volatile temperamentally, very emotional. up and down, and could sink into despondency fairly quickly too. This was something that bedeviled him throughout his life. But also it was in those heights of excitement and, and in a sense, political ardour that he probably endeared himself as one of the sort of heroic figures who could express and articulate carefully and precisely, in a way, the destiny and hopes of the working class against those who would oppress and, and rob them of their of their future and their just rights.
1: He was articulating verbally. What about his writing?
3: He obviously seemed to write and relish the act of writing just from his early days as a cabin boy and seaman in his commonplace book. But it was there that in many ways he imbued sometimes the more flourishing style of some of his preferred writers whom he copied very carefully into that commonplace book. He began probably writing little pieces, mostly for The Toxin, with Bernard O'Dowd as the first editor. And there were several others on that you know, initial collective that started it, but he gradually began writing. He also modelled a lot of his parables that he became famous for about exciting and instructive tales of of life, particularly at sea. They were modelled actually in many ways on the the writings of a friend of his, Louis Beck, a well-known Australian novelist, adventure novelist. He did that. He did more, well, basically rhetorical stuff in the courts of labour, you know, over particular issues. Then he just kept building it up and he he became a regular writer. And when I went into his house in Brunswick, uh, Howard Street, East Brunswick, the room where he worked and held his speaking classes for the likes of Frank Hyatt and John Curtin on Sundays was a large room and had a lot of pigeonholes above a a built-in desk. And what he used to do, apparently, he would stuff stuff into pigeonholes according to subject and then he'd tear them down and then write at great speed and dash off pieces. Uh, this is articles for, lab- well, toxinol when it became Labour Call. It was, again, something that he would do, not in a kind of deliberate and careful way that some of us might do if we're writing for publication, He'd dash it off, and I've seen little scraps of paper about about the size of a 5B8 system card. He would scribble notes and or passages work onto those and then put together in an almost indecipherable bloody hand. He was a terrible bloody calligrapher. Now,
1: 1902, was he one of the people who started the Labor Party?
3: No. Well, he started... He was active in the early years of the political Labor movement, yes, but he was on the radical fringes of it in his own way because there was a constellation of small outfits in Victoria, the sheer number of them, the ones that he gravitated towards were those, those kind of slightly romantic, radical, but not ex- as explicitly self-consciously socialist as some of the others, but nevertheless of the left and to the left. In retrospect, it, it would be accurate to refer him, as I often do when I write about him, as a uh, radical left populist. He had a very distinct sense of class, and the culture of working-class people, but it was not constructed in the classic socialist terms. The working class were themselves the people because they were the majority and ipso facto the political legitimacy and moral authority that the majority carried with them as the majority of the people constituted the essence of the working class. We sometimes make a mistake of, of imposing a pretty strict model of what constitutes socialism drawn from European and other traditions onto the Australian experience. And I think sometimes we distort a little bit what it was like on the ground because people were side by side fighting together, you know, where, for example, the syndicalists in, you know, more more explicitly, of course, the IWW later on, were really working side by side in campaigns at least and rubbing shoulders with people like the Victorian Socialist Party. You know, it's Tom Mann's outfit, you know, with, and, but Curtin and a lot of the other subsequent Labour politicians were members of that. And, you know, the Labour Party with its Labourist and union you know, base, and, you know, the other little, small little socialist sects. So, in a way, how you talk about formations of political Labour... In Victoria, it's a it's a real it's a real swamp, really. <laughs> yeah, out of which emerged at least the Labor Party, but that was largely in part, of course, because among other things, it had the benefit of the organisational structure of the union movement, and as you well know, outfits that have an enduring, established structure with customary culture surrounding it are more likely to survive you know, the ups and downs, you know, whereas the sort of people who rely largely on ideological commitment of leading personalities, you know, tend to fade as, as time passes and challenges emerge and people get old and move on.
1: What was the political, industrial issues of that first decade of the 20th century?
3: Oh, well, the big one, initially in Victoria anyway. Well, not just the formation of a party and trade unions, but with... the The 1903 railway strike, a monster affair. You had Irvine, Iceberg Irvine, as he's called, a particularly chilly premier who was utterly implacable about public sector workers who would have the effrontery to actually strike over the the classic issues of wages, conditions and so on. But he and his, his ilk regarded this as some kind of mutiny These are public servants of the people. These are instruments of the government. To withdraw their labour is an affront to the the sovereign majesty of government authority, and they had to be crushed. What happened was, given that by then Anstey had entered the Victorian Parliament in 1902 for East Burke Boroughs, he became a leading opponent of the um, strike suppression bill which was a really draconian piece of legislation that the state government put up to the parliament and was debated while the strike went on. Anstey was very, very strong in support of the uh, railway workers and the tramway workers. He, in fact, became later the uh, president of the Tramways Union, and particularly you know, with the Brunswick Depot and so on, was writing his own electorate. He uh, was first, but then came not only to state but national notice... For his rhetorical assault on Irvine and his government for what they'd done in attempting to suppress ordinary working people exercising their right to pursue their industrial claims through industrial action, but but having treated it as if they were enemies of the pe- enemies of the state, and that was a view that gained a great deal of support and respect outside of government and. The sort of uh, the more feral circles of anti-worker opinion, the government won. What happened was it was such a dastardly uh, bit of legislation. Actually, the workers caved in. They went back to work under the threat of the draconian provisions, and, and the act was never passed or proclaimed. But it kind of lay there at the ready. But it left a large number of scars because a lot of people were never re-employed. Their cards were marked, the blacklisting. Was nothing new. It didn't didn't happen first in nineteen seventeen in New South Wales and the railway strike there. It didn't happen first in 'twenty three in the police strike in Victoria. It happened first here in nineteen o three.
1: He went back to England in nineteen hundred and seven. What was happening well, it was there?
3: Interesting, actually. He'd just come out of a, a very lively and bruising election campaign against a um, one of the Wowsers, a, a lay preacher, a Methodist lay preacher called Judkins, who'd taken him on because he was all in favour of, of drink, of racing and betting. He's a friend of Jack Wren's. Uh, he was a defender of a lot of what now would be thought of as very unfashionable, masculinist, working-class culture. And so they decided to take him on. They reckon they might be able to knock him off. Well, of course, he loved it. It was the sort of fight that uh, where he was at his best poking muck at the wowsers, the skill joys, the spoil sports, you know. What was not said was that a lot of that stuff, wowsers stuff, was actually had a, a legitimate base, namely people who were concerned about, you know, drunken, abusive husbands, you know, in the domestic circumstances and so on. But none of that got to be made much public. You know, there was lots about drink and the debilitating effects of gambling and drink, of course, but not a lot about things like the really nasty behind the door stuff that, you know, even to this day many people don't like to talk about. But there was a bit of that. So the Wowsers, you know, were, didn't quite deserve all of his reputeration, <laughs> but they were very self-righteous and so on. But out of that fight came a lot of expansion of energy, and he was exhausted and declared and owned up to the fact that he was crook, and the doctor ordered him to have a rest. So they had a whip round in Brunswick. So they they got him a, a, a saloon cabin fare, return fare to England, to visit his old mum, and also 175 sovereigns. Now that amounted to about six months' parliamentary salary. I reckon that the loyal supporters in Brunswick were not likely to have contributed that much to his going away fund. I think some very grateful friends of his, like John Wren and others, were highly likely to have been substantial contributors to the cause. So anyway, off he went. He got to England. Yes, he did visit the old mum. He then went up to the the north and participated in a Jarrow by-election, which was the important by-election then for the British Parliament. He got to rub shoulders with the working class and, and Labour activists of their sister Labour Party because remember political Labour was in advance of British political Labour at that stage he worked side by side on the hustings in the Jarrah by-election and, and that was like you know duck to water really he, he was in his element. I, I, I've seen reports of speeches he was making it could have been the sort of stuff he was doing in Brunswick and in the inner suburbs of Melbourne so he was doing his usual stuff he also reported on the Socialist Congress, you know, Second International Socialist Congress of Stuttgart, which was going on there, and he reported from Britain on that and sent articles back to the uh, yeah, it's Labour Call by then. They were published here and were closely read and followed as part of the Anstey adventures, you know, that people had contributed money to send him off to have and to report back. And when he got back, he, he sort of continued to do the rounds, but also became quite the itinerant organiser of Labour. He had already, before he went away, done country organising tours with people like Charlie McGrath and others, but he'd also gone on touring with Tom Mann and others, uh, women organisers as well as men in country districts organising over, in the course of which he took his usual careful notes and did his preparations and wrote a series of articles for a Labour call Called Monopoly and Democracy about the land question of Victoria, he developed those articles eventually into a book called Monopoly and Democracy, which was published as a, a claim to break up the large landed estates of Victoria into small yeoman farmer-sized you know, settlement blocks. It was consistent utterly with existing Labour policy, but it was a, a quite detailed expression of a, an elaborated public policy proposals for political Labour in Victoria.
1: Did he see the war coming?
3: He did. He, among others, was sounding the alarm before hostilities began. But, of course, you'd have to be bloody blind if you had an interest in world affairs. You'd have to be blind not to see that a powder keg was there ready to go and all you needed was some mad bugger to light the fuse, which, as you know, we did, did happen. But he, among others, at the time had been... Alarmed to the degree to which the kind of the normal monopolistic tendencies of capitalism had been revealed, in among other things, not subsequently as he would write later in in the finance sector, but very much in the armaments industry, very much in control of strategic resources and factories, and and also in newspapers as well, and that this was all part of a ruling class or an elite. That uh, he would put together in a very, in a quite distinctively populist way, but it it sort of merged with what the socialists were saying as well as a ruling class. It's because the boundaries were not always as distinct uh, in their political ideology. The Armaments Trust, he was writing articles about them before August 1914 and publishing them. And he was the first, when war broke out, he wasn't there. You know, rallying behind the leader of the opposition for last man and last shilling because remember Labor, had you know, Andy Fisher had been out of office for a year. He led the push there to the loyalist Labor but Anstey, right from the very beginning when they voted I mean, soon after the war in the Parliament to give a fair whack of donation to Little Belgium Anstey objected and said well, yeah, well they're treating their striking workers at the moment in a belligerent manner, and besides their king has been one of the most ruthless and vicious exploiters of African labour in their colonies, unless we were going to be sure that the money would be going to ordinary, struggling Belgians. They didn't want to vote for it. This sort of, at the beginnings of the patriotic fervour, sort of singly loudest, distinctly disloyal, uh, young know, cranky sort of person.
1: So there was no anti-war movement at that time? Yeah,
3: there was, but it was was, was quite a small one. It consisted of an interesting collection of folks. The religiously inspired pacifists, not just the Quakers but others. There were the feminists. Many of them were utterly opposed to war, both on principle and for the dramatic effects that it would have, as later became obvious to everybody, that what a woman in a customary role that assigned that they were assigned by society at the time, in maintaining and uh, sustaining the family, when their men were taken away, just by volunteering to fight, and let alone by being conscripted, and that when someone died, the widow's pension, which you know, came, was a pretty miserable, bloody affair. It's a totally devastating. Thing, leaving inside the personal and the emotional you know, horrors of it all So a lot of women saw quite clearly from the beginning That they weren't all gung-ho You know, this or the war will make a man out of you They had a very good sense, many of them
1: What about yeah. the unions?
3: They varied Most unions were swept up in the patriotic fervour There'd been the Second International's declaration That there should be a strike against war but, of course, when war came, you know, the working class of, of Europe turned patriot to a man almost and, and, and signed on to slaughter each other in what they didn't at that stage realise was going to be, you know, industrial dimensions to slaughter. Well, Anstey's own mob were a good case in point. Here was him, the president of the union. They established a patriotic fund and it was there to have give money to the widows and family of soldiers who had gone off being killed or some who'd come back, yeah, you know, wound, wounded and injured. And she kept quiet about that. He was in the chair at the meeting where they voted on this. But he lied doggo on that, just like he did during the 1914, you know, sort of khaki election, where he fought on traditional Labor values, the federal election that year. And so, yeah, he was, was a cunning enough bugger. You know, he could duck and weave. But he did actually stand up in areas where it mattered. So he didn't needlessly provoke The unions slowly came round later to opposing war. Well, not just casualties, there were other privations at home, the sort of stuff that the women had been complaining about all along. Shortages, the doubling of prices of basic commodities, the freezing of wages and the massive inflation, which was a a huge hit to standard of living. All those everyday common or garden pressures that people come under, they were really, really telling. And then when you add to that, the casualty lists... The fact that there's no street or suburb where you know, people don't dread the post boy coming up on his bike. They close the blinds when they see the, the local priest or vicar come down the street for fear that he's coming to tell them something they don't want to hear. What war means? People didn't imagine that in the early patriotic fervour of it all.
1: How did you get to the call for conscription?
3: Basically, it was the slaughter in the trenches. Per head, Australians had volunteered in very, very high proportions compared with other combatant nations. And so the volunteer system in Australia, as a proportion of eligible young men, was pretty successful. But, of course, that wasn't the point. I mean, they had a slaughterhouse It was just chewing up men on both sides. So when ewes went across to England... The beginning of nineteen sixteen, as Prime Minister, because he'd taken over when Andy Fisher had given the game away in nineteen fifteen, Hughes was a, an absolute patriot for the the cause of the war. He was dutchest in England. He was persuaded of the need for further reinforcements. He and others at home they pressed very hard for enhanced recruiting under the voluntary system, but the sheer numbers required didn't go anywhere near what the phony targets which the English military had concocted, it so turns out, after careful investigation many years later, and this created the demand by some here, and then, of course, Hughes was plotting all the while, to propose conscription, the compulsory enlistment of men to fight overseas. There was already a requirement for compulsory military training since 1909 in a system that used to be called boy conscription, but that was for home defence, this was you know, an entirely different matter. And news came back from England determined he was going to do it. He foisted the proposal on them after pussyfooting around the edges for a bit. But everyone knew it was coming. And so they were preparing. And in advance of it, the trade unions had got together. And in May, they'd, they'd had an all-Australian trade union congress at Trades Hall determined resolutely to fight any proposals to oppose conscription.
1: And that's... Dr. Peter Love, who's the biographer of Frank Anstey, who was one of the leaders of the opposition to the conscription campaigns in 1916-17. And on the program next week, Peter will be talking about the role of various people in those campaigns and Frank Anstey, what sort of a career he had after the war ended. That's about all for me today. It's coming up to six o'clock. Done by Law will be here in about oh, three minutes by a couple of community announcements and then they'll be right here.